name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Laudator Jesus Christus. In, in secula. secula. This is Timothy Flanders with the meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Welcome Amen. once again to another weekly edition of the Monday Morning Man Show, Our Lady of Victory, with co-hosts Fowler and Paleocrat. Yeah. How you doing? How you doing, gentlemen? Doing well. Doing really well. Yeah. Started school last week. That's why I'm all ready. I'm ready to go because after this ends, out the door. Yeah, you, but, you yeah. leave right at uh, so it's five a.m. Central Time. You leave right at six a.m. Well, after I after I have my ritual chat with the paleocrat, oh, yeah, which yeah, will yeah, have yeah. to be we'll have to pare it down a little bit. We during the summertime, <laughs> yeah. man. I kid you not. We were talking for like two hours. Yeah, yeah. viewers don't it's know pretty... because at so six a.m. <laughs> Eastern Time at seven a.m. I leave this show immediately because my kids are waking up almost immediately. And uh, and then Fowler and Paleocrat have a two-hour morning morning meeting that they have after that in private. That's how we hatch out all the genius stuff. All the That's amazing where, plans. Yeah. Yeah. So if in case anybody likes his show or my show, I write all of his stuff and send him the yeah. script. And he writes all of mine and sends me the script. And that's how we the inner working of Paleocrat Diaries. Yeah. I, I'm actually the more mild mannered guy, which is why mm -hmm. his show is so mild mannered and mine is so manic. <laughs> That's what it is. And so, and Fowler yeah. in private is actually crazily off the chain He's all nuts. the time. He's crazy. He's the one who oh. puts the energy yeah. into the Paleocrat show. So, right. He's right. like, I have to say this again. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. So uh, welcome to uh, uh, our, our viewers. I think we have one Aussie with us who says good evening. I think Giovanni is an Aussie based on what he's saying. So, yeah, right now it is um, I, I found that in Auckland, New Zealand, it's 14 hours ahead. So it's 8 p.m. in New Zealand right now. Uh, it's Monday evening. Uh, hmm. I, as I I think that Auckland, New Zealand is the the first I, I don't know which which part in the Pacific Ocean is the very first hour of the world, but uh, it's probably near Auckland, New Zealand. So uh, so welcome. Uh, Giovanni says, OK, here we go. Oh, I, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. Giovanni says it's 8 p.m. in Australia, 10 p.m. in New Zealand. 16 no, hours. Right. Ahead. Had that wrong. Oh, is it 14? I don't know. Can't, I can't do the math this early in the morning. But welcome to the 11th week after Pentecost. We have some wonderful things this week. As always, check out liturgeofthehome.com for the beautiful calendar to help catechize your children. I have this calendar right next to we have our, our kids' table in the middle of our big uh, living room area slash kitchen. And the kids sit at the table and they got this calendar right next to them. So they're always looking at it. Dad, what day is it? And so today is the Immaculate Heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In the new calendar, it's uh, feast is switched to the Queenship of Mary. So we're going to be talking about this feast day. And I just learned that this was uh, instituted under, under Pius XII. Uh, his other big feast day is the is um, St. Joseph the Worker against the Communists. Another great feast day. 
And so we have uh, this week, we have St. Philip Benizi, St. Bartholomew Apostle, St. Louis the Ninth. King of France. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to ask you about uh, the festivities in St. Louis that you're having, uh, Fowler. And we'll get back to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So tell us about um, what's happening in St. Louis this week. So starting on, I think it's Wednesday night, right? The 25th is Thursday. Hang on. Yeah. The 25th is Thursday. That's the Feast of St. Louis, King of France, our patronal feast for this archdiocese. And beginning Wednesday night, we'll have first Vespers at the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine. I don't recall the time. However, if you go to stlouislatinmass.com, if you're in the area, you can surely find the information there. Or stlouisforever.com probably is another good source. Then starting really early Thursday morning, matins, lauds, and then the day just continues. I think high mass is at 10 a.m. or maybe noon. There's going to be adoration and benediction later in the afternoon. And then beginning around 4 p.m., I want to say, a procession from the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine to the statue of St. Louis in Forest Park, uh, the Apotheosis of of St. Louis, which is uh, almost two miles, right? It's in the heat. There it is. Yes, there it is. So in the heat, we process, we sing, uh, we talk, uh, we, we, we arrive at the statue, we pray a rosary, and then, oh, it's 15-decade rosary, by the way. And then we... The full uh, rosary. Let, full, the full, yeah, it's the real deal. Uh, and then let the feast begin. So, and then, you know, by this time, however many people have joined us along the way for the day's festivities, just chilling at the statue and uh having a good time in celebration of our king this is so this is so fantastic there's so much we need to talk about about this awesome uh example that you've given to every catholic city of the world with this whole thing uh here's here is a report there's two reports from new liturgical movement written by um the wonderful anna kalinovska who's written for one peter oh i know anna yes yeah she she's a wonderful writer She's written some awesome things over at 1 Peter 5 on um, beauty and um, attire, dress. It's it's mm-hmm. fantastic stuff that she writes. So here's a picture from uh, her report here. This is the, uh, I don't know if I'm, yeah, you can see this. Okay. All right. Um, so here's, uh, it looks like this is where they, you, y'all end at the, at the apotheosis, right. apoth- apotheosis of St. Louis. Um so here's the uh, some of the festivities processioned into the cathedral. This is that beautiful cathedral that that you have there. Yeah. That was uh, last year. So this year's ve- first vespers are being held at our parish church. But last year they they secured the cathedral for uh, for all the not all of the prayer, but some of the uh, some of the divine office. So it was really great. Oh, the Knights of uh, St. John were, were with us last year. I hope they join us again. I think they drove down from Chicago. There they are. And that, that's our church. So no, you can, this you is can your tell church right the parlor church. Right. That's right. right. That's right. Awesome. So you can tell the the uh, altar and behind are much different than the cathedral. But And this this Monsignor right here, is this is your oh, priest. 
that's him. Anybody recognize him from a yeah, certain he's in, movie he's in mass about the ages. a certain Latin mass? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, good friend of mine, Monsignor Morris. Right, he, Monsignor Eugene yep. Morris. Excellent. Here's the adoration. And here's yeah, so I can't emphasize it enough. I know, and this is the most amazing part, the procession, and also the most miserable part. Because normally, <laughs> I, I haven't checked the weather for this week, but normally it's like 98 and humid, right? So you're, you're all dressed up because you want to look nice. And then next thing you know, you're a sloppy mess by the time you get to the to the statue. But these guys are miserable know, right here. But they're, they're those, doing yes, it for the glory those of guys, God. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I cannot emphasize enough if you are within reasonable driving distance to st louis you should check this out i'm not aware of anything else like it at least not in not in the lower midwest look at this brass uh, brass band with christus finchett at the statute that's what i'm talking about right there (laughs) the first year we did it in fact i think both years we processed with a relic of st louis all right and I think one of the years, I could be mistaken, so anybody who is there who knows more, correct me, but I believe one of the years also, there may have been a relic of the true cross. All right. Wait, did, I'm no, not, so not did Monsignor sure Morris that. start this whole event? Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure whose idea it was, but he was the natural ally of the event. Being the rector of the Oratory of uh, St. Gregory and Augustine, he sort of... Uh, well, between he and the, the priests of the Institute, which we have here in town as well, they sort of like, they're the go-tos for, for trad stuff, right? So you want a guy to lead uh, the divine office over, you know, a 30-hour period and organize a procession and a full rosary and a big party at the statue. The reason we did all this um, to begin with, right, sort of bittersweet if you think about it there were a bunch of knuckleheads that wanted to tear the statue down a couple years ago. And Catholics in the area were like, wait, you can't do that. And so we sort of rallied around our, our patron, if you will. Right. So I, I say bittersweet because shame on us for not doing it all the time before that, no matter what other people thought, but now it's really sweet because as far as I know, this is going to be moving forward. Um, anyhow, but yeah, if you're in the area and you can make the drive, I don't recommend trying to go to everything because that would exhaust you. But look at the itinerary, pick out a couple of things that that you can get your family to, whether it's prayer early in the morning, whether it's mass, whether it's benediction, and just relish the communion of saints, relish in the life that the church gives us. And then if you can, process to the statue and, and, and party with us. So it's going to be a Man. great time. So this was actually in reaction to the summer of love BLM throughout the whole, all all the nation, all the different states of the United States, the summer of love in which BLM destroyed businesses and hurt poor black people with businesses in the inner city. Um, But uh, what happened in particular was this uh, weird uh, situation happened in St. Louis where they were trying to tear down the statue that summer. And this was right. in react. This whole event has be has developed in react. Yeah, it just that. it sort of got its momentum from all of the happenings. Uh, and there was a, a particular activist who shall remain unnamed because he, he's not worthy to be mentioned. Um, who who sort of led the the um, 
the movement, if you will, to yes. to topple the statue. I mean, he, they were petitioning the mayor. They were petitioning the city council. They were, you know, trying to <laughs> just, you know, yeah, rabble rouse until Somehow, they, because uh, he never met an African in his life. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, boy. Well, the yeah. mayor basically told him, yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> so, I mean, good for her. Good for her. What, what did you think of oh, E. Michael Jones's take? Did you read that whole article that I sent? I gave you? Um, I did. I did. I probably should reserve comments until we're in private next. Oh, okay. No, I thought. I thought. Michael Jones is always always for the private conversation. Yeah. (laughs) Hop over to the the private guild stream for all our E. Michael Jones content. Yeah, there you go. Um, Well, no, I I thought for the most part he was. It it was pretty interesting. Yeah, absolutely. E. Michael Jones actually debated this individual activist on his Mm -hmm. uh, his assertions. So. Anyways, well, let's get into our topic, the Immaculate Heart and the Devout Life. Uh, Paleocrat is going to speak on some of his content recently on the Devout Life, one of the, one of the spiritual cr- classics of Western civilization, Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. Uh, and I wanted to just touch on this Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary because it's something that I've been th- tossing around in my brain for a while over the past few years. And so this feast was initially approved by Pius VII. Uh, it was elevated by Pius IX and finally cre- put it into the general Roman calendar by Pius XII. So that's why if you have an older breviary before Pius XII, it's not in there. Uh, it's actually the octave day of the Assumption. There used to be an, uh, an Assumption octave. And then in the new calendar, it's, uh, it's, not, it's no longer in existence either. But obviously, the Immaculate Heart of Mary brings up the great apparition of Our Lady of Fatima, in which God gave his mandate to the first Saturday devotion of reparation to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And uh, it, I think when we talk about the heart of Mary, I, I think of it, first of all, because there is, uh, from the Eastern Orthodox polemic, the polemical world that I came from, there used to be this polemic against the sacred heart of Jesus because they would claim falsely that this is some sort of Nestorian thing. Um, <clears throat> but it's interesting that after in the post Tridentine period, when the church was very militant against the Protestants, uh, led especially by the Jesuits, but also the Dominicans and the Franciscans, um, there was this what what seems to me to be an immense influence of Aristotle in interpreting Thomas and interpreting the tradition. And it seems to me that even, especially the the influence of Jansenism, which was an immense amount of rigor, rigoristic, juridical, interpretive hermeneutic of the tradition, which very much created this dismissal or this, uh, um, sort of marginalization of the heart as the spiritual center of the person. And so what I mean by that is I, even today, I don't know if you, y'all would agree with this, but it seems to me that I, in, in certain um, trad circles or certain, certain texts that I read, there's an emphasis on this dichotomy between the intellect and the will and the passions. There's sort of this tripartite, uh, division of man. So it's ta- you're talking all about the will, the will, the will, or the intellect, the intellect, and 
the faith is into the intellect and then you have to put the moral action in your will and you have to you know govern your passions by reason and all this but there's just no mention of the heart of the fact that the heart is the spiritual center of the person meaning the heart is the place both that connects your soul which is the immaterial spiritual reality that is immortal of your body the heart connects your soul to your body so the heart is sort of a spiritual and an immaterial organ but also a material organ but it's also the place where your intellect is connected to your will and your passions so it's this sort of the central aspect of your person but uh, you know even though there's sort of this intellectualizing language i think um which I think can become an excess. It can become uh, it, maybe if, if certain priests have been trained in this immense sort of Aristotelian framework where they'll just never talk about the heart. It'll just all be about your intellect, your will. And, you know, in confession, they'll just be talking about all these different aspects, but not the heart. Um, it's interesting because, you know, when you, when you talk about, um, you know, <laughs> romance, you know, you, you don't say, Oh, my beloved, I give you my intellect or I give you my <laughs> yeah. will. You know, yeah. I I give you the, my affections or, you know, you just don't talk like that. It's just never been. But but there's something intuitive about the heart that everybody just understands. It's kind of weird. Like, uh, you know, when you just say I give you my heart to your lady, you know, she understands what you mean. It's like it's something that everyone just sort of understands that the heart is this spiritual center of your, your person and everyone's person is, is centered on the heart. And I, as I, as I be, as I was reading the Holy scriptures this, this past year, I was just noticing how much the heart is so central to the Holy scriptures. There's so many different um, aspects of it. The, like in the divine office, you pray, um, what is it? Psalm 94, number 95. Um, if today you hear his voice, harden not your mm -hmm. hearts. Right. And obviously Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord and God struck him. And it even says that in, in the earlier in Noah or in um, Genesis, God was grieved in his heart or in the Psalms, the, the thoughts of the Lord's heart endure from generation to generation. So the heart is even ascribed to God himself. And so there's this, this centrality of the heart in the Holy scriptures and in the tradition, there's, there's really not, it's funny because the scriptures don't really have any sort of intellect and will and all this stuff. It does not really in the scriptures. It, I think it comes from Aristotle and Plato, as far as I can tell. But um, all I'm saying, first of all, is that there does seem to be some sort of neo-Thomism excess or Jansenist excess or something that happens in certain circles of Catholicism where I think there's this immense emphasis on sort of this metaphysical distinction of man and a lack of talk about the heart. And I think that God, it seems that God in his providence was recognizing this tendency already back in the 1600s when he revealed his sacred heart. And so we have the devotion to the sacred heart, which the Jansenists hated that devotion. That, that's what they were fighting against so much. They hated the Sacred Heart devotion. You know, they thought it promoted laxity, basically, because they were all about enforcing the moral code to an insane, rigoristic degree. Um, but we have the Sacred Heart of Jesus revealed, first of all, to St. Mar Margaret Mary Alacoque. And then we have later on, 
the Immaculate Heart of Mary as well. And I, I think that uh, what seems to me, not only is this devotion of the Immaculate Heart of Mary really uh, helping to heal some of this excess of intellectualizing in, in our modern period, but it also cuts to the very heart of the breakdown of the family, which is has to, has into, have, having to do with feminism, which is where uh, feminism is a modern movement, which is a overreaction to the Puritan juridical subjugation of woman due to the Protestant heresy, where they, they destroyed the cult of Mary, and then they subjugated woman in a way that she hadn't been subjugated since the pagan days. And so she was really objectified, uh, objectivized. And then the uh, feminists re overreacted to that uh, to try to correct that, but they couldn't do it because they were not Catholic. And I think the, the devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary really heals the, the poison of feminism because it really centers our devotion, once again, our, on Our Lady. And Our Lady is the one who heals the hearts of women and the hearts of men from the poison of feminism. And I see, I see that in particular coming against the heirs of Russia because heirs of Russia, one of the key things that uh, the communists of Russia promoted was sexual revolution and feminism. And I was just reading about um, in the, how the 1920s, the, the sexual revolution in the 1920s in the Western Europe and America, everybody was obsessed with Soviet Russia. They're like, whoa, Soviet Russia, they got a free love society. This is awesome. And everybody was talking about all the, the progressives in the 20s of the West were talking about Soviet Russia. And uh, I can see in, in God's providence how he, he promoted this Immaculate Heart of Mary, this devotion. And so this is why I think that this devotion is so important for our time. Um, I, not, I don't have a strong opinion on any particular Fatima hypothesis, but if, if you believe that one of those consecrations work to Russia, um, well, we, we do have our role to play. I do believe that certainly that we should offer up the five Saturdays. If you haven't done it already, if you've done it already, why not make it a monthly practice and offer it up for those who haven't offered it up. And we need to do our part. I, I believe as lay people to offer up the this devotion this reparation to the immaculate heart of mary because ultimately feminism this this poison of feminism it offends the heart of mary and these these blasphemies against the heart of mary against her her the various dogmas are really feminism hates the two things that are most glorious about the virgin mary feminism hates virginity and it hates motherhood it hates ultimately the virgin mary feminism is an attack on the virgin mary so do your first Saturday devotions. And uh, those are my thoughts on the heart and uh, the Immaculate Heart of Mary. What are your thoughts, gentlemen? Go ahead, man. I was going to say, it's you so know, patient. Yeah, you're going to, this is the get Jeremiah in trouble with Trad Show. Oh, um, <laughs> no, not really. No, you know, actually, I, I, may, I may surprise him. So, but no, the, I was going to say, that's something that I've thought about a lot recently. And one of the reasons why I've actually done the, uh, the series on the devout life is because it's really easy to get caught up in talking about just pure intellect or, um, you know, the will and everything else and not, and not including the heart. And one of the things, and I mention them all the time is true. Um, I'm probably an enthusiast for him, but Ronald Knox <laughs> that, that, uh, 
he talks in his criticisms of 20th century apologetics and how apologetics had come to be in that it had become something that was uh, like Catholicism to many people in general. It was beautiful. It was mathematical in its precision, but it was like silver uh, candy and silver wrappers neatly done, right? Manufactured. It felt manufactured. It felt uh, cold, lifeless even, but it was shiny, Right. It was a taste to it that was sweet, but it was it was just it, it kind of lost its luster. And to him, he, he felt that maybe and this was a surprising thing to people because of his book called Enthusiasm, that he felt like maybe there was something in Pascal that we were missing. And what that was, was the heart. And it was it was awesome because I was just I'm going through history of apologetics. I'm putting together a bunch of notes, trying to, trying to be a little bit more like Fowler, <laughs> actually making <laughs> notes to like have a plan <laughs> instead of just going chapter by chapter and saying, I, hey, what's this one? Um, but no, the, um, he, he talks about in, in this book, talking about uh, the part in the 16th through the 18th centuries. Uh, he talks about how, unlike previous apologists, Pascal makes no effort in giving metaphysical arguments for the existence of God. He ridicules those who argue there's no vacuum, uh, hence God exists, right? Even if such proofs were valid, to what would they lead except empty deism, right? So you, you have just kind of, there's no heart in deism. What's the point? Why do you love the watchmaker that doesn't care about you kind of thing? And he says, Pascal profoundly analyzes the relations between faith and reason. Like Augustine, he finds a unity within difference, a concord within contrast. Nothing is more reasonable, he maintains, than for reason to submit to authority. And then he says here, he says, uh, he says that uh, in its decision to submit, reason is not governed by probative, uh, probative evidences, but rather by reason of the heart. And this term in Pascal does not mean emotion or blind sentiment, but an intuitive type of logic. It issues not um, from it would be es esprit de geometry, <laughs> but from uh, esprit de finesse. I'm hacking it to pieces. <laughs> uh, the man who seeks uh, stringent evidence for the truth of Christianity will not find it. God has so arranged things that there is, quote, enough light for those who desire only to see and enough obscurity for those who have the contrary disposition. Those who are able to believe without proofs do so because God inclines their heart. And so I think, the gist of it is that between these extremes is the heart and it's not just a feely feel good. It's a, a kind of intuition. It's, it's a kind of thing that says something God has situated the world in this crazy way where there's all of these tensions and all of these difficult things to, you know, uh, circles to square, right? <laughs> like how does this work? How does this happen? And, and in that crazy environment, in that system, that there's a priority of the heart and there's a stability of the heart and that that heart on the one hand is restless, but it also finds rest in God and that it, it strives to know and it strives to, to uh, advance and yet at the same time to submit, right, to find that peace and to find that calm in that. And in a way, it's to find peace in the eye of the storm. And I think that one of the reasons why the Immaculate Heart is so powerful and so timely is because given the circumstances, we are, we're in a tumult of maybe all time. We're, we're in this crazy, terrible storm. And yet right there in the heart of it, 
uh, is her immaculate heart. And there's a column in it. So to place our hearts within hers in, in a certain way would be to surrender our person to hers, right? The scriptures use heart to mean the core of the person, like you said earlier, Tim. And so if, if we're giving over the, the very core of our person to Our Lady, she is going to walk us straight to our Lord. I mean, her last words in Scripture, do whatever he tells you. So that that's why if anybody's out there going, yeah, but I just I, I don't know about Our Lady. I'd like to just go straight to our Lord. I know that's probably not this audience, but you, you know, you never know. Somebody sees this video. Why do I have to go through Our Lady? Because she is going to take your heart, mold it to be like her own, which is that perfectly human and perfectly receptive submission to the will of God. Who doesn't want that? What devout Christian doesn't want that? So if you are not a Catholic or you're a Catholic who's just not really big on Marian devotion, reconsider because Our Lady is going to literally take your heart, shape it to be like hers, and walk you to the footsteps of the cross right where where you gaze upon his heart poured out for all of us and it's not like jeremiah said it's not uh some sort of sentimentality i think that's where the breakdown is a lot of times you think well my mind and my will that's really the most important part of me and although they have their place and they're really really important the heart isn't my feelings the heart is the the totality of who I am, right? It's body and soul. So again, to give of ourselves in that manner to she who loves us above all, she'll take us to him who loves us above all. I mean, what's not to love? Yeah, this is, I mean, think of the Roman liturgy, sursum corda, mm -hmm. lift up your hearts. And so this is the movement of the liturgy is the lifting of our hearts, the moving of our hearts to Almighty God. And that's not merely our emotions. Our heart includes our emotions as the lower, more, uh, more earthly parts of us. And the heart also includes your intellect and will as the more heavenly parts of us and ultimately our souls, which is the immortal part of us. And, uh, I, the the collect actually appointed for today's feast, and I, I forgot my missile upstairs, but it's um, it's something like the Immaculate Heart of Mary. O Immaculate Heart of Mary, draw our hearts to the heart of God. So it actually has the that anthropomorphizing phrase from Scripture of the heart of God. And but there's something intuitive about it that people do understand. I think, like I said, when you say. Uh, nobody says to his wife, I give you my intellect or I give you my will. But why do we talk to God that way? I give you my intellect. I give you my little, you know, obviously that's still true, but at the heart, that's the, really the core. <clears throat> and the Latin word for heart is core as, as a uh, follower brought out. Um, and uh, I haven't actually read Hildebrand's text. He has a text called the heart all about this but i've read his thoughts and other other of his works where he talks about he uses the phrase the heart is the spiritual center of the person and mm -hmm. i think that that really encompasses that but I, I very much find it very uh intuitively helpful to me personally 
essentially like if we talk about apologetics, apologetics is really trying to win over the heart of that individual. Because sometimes we can get so focused on the intellect, intellectual argument um, that we can actually turn away the person from the faith because we're not we're not focusing on their heart. Um, and I, I've done that myself. I've gotten in an argument with, you know, another individual because I'm so focused on proving him wrong that he ends up being dissuaded from the faith, even though I've proved him wrong. Like, why did he, right. you know, why did, that's because I didn't focus on his heart first. Now, lest any anyone misunderstand, again, we're not talking about merely the emotions, but we're just, the, this is the proper ordering of man is that if we center him in his heart and then we understand that his intellect, his intellect, you know, the apostates or, or heretics or what have you, you know, we need to think about the fact that their hearts are inclined towards sin. That's the reason their intellects are darkened. It's not just like, oh, they're stupid. Why don't they get it? You know, it's, we need to understand how, why, why is that the case? You know? Um, so it's, it's, you know, when we come, come at, a, 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 we try to, admonish a sinner using the spiritual works of mercy, we have to work to incline, win over their hearts, incline their hearts towards the good, towards the beautiful, towards the truth. And that includes winning over their intellect, but that's one part of the whole. And I think that's why uh, a certain apologetic method employed by a certain paleocrat is, yeah. is really so important. No, I, I mean that. Yeah. Um, there's you know, the, the classical apologetic method, which I think is fantastic and exceedingly useful, has its limitations because it targets the intellect. It doesn't target the heart. Whereas the presuppositional method, I think, does focuses on the other one. It not so much on the intellect, more on the heart. Not that either one are lacking in either dimension, but there's a different focus. So the the you know, um, for for those of you who enjoy Jeremiah's show, the one thing that he says from time to time that I love the most is that to remember that we are living epistles, right? If you want to convert somebody, then live a Catholic life. You don't need to know uh, anything about the Trinity from any graduate school class. Just pray your prayers, go to mass and, and love God. Right. And that's, that's why, uh, I, I'm trying to give you a little segue here for the devout life because <laughs> giving our hearts again, giving our hearts to our lady, living that fully Catholic life, mind, body, soul. That's the essence of this whole apostolate, right? Paleocrat diaries, meaning of Catholic. What are we here for to win souls for Christ? Well, how do you do that? You have to get to people's hearts, right? So do you do that through devotion to our lady? Do you do that through reading Thomas and Aristotle? Yeah, sometimes you do, but other times you just have to focus on prayer, virtue, right? Hence the series that's been going on. Yeah. And I've had to, you know, I've had to step back every now and again because it's easy to get wrapped up in, in, you know, trying to advance the idea of a certain kind of argument or a certain methodology. And it's really easy to lose track of, of, the more practical, the more practical applications of these things in life and how it's not always about an ism or an Asian. It really is about the idea that you are a living epistle. And it's amazing because like back, it's, it's funny if somebody said like, what was your favorite series that you've ever done? 
I mean, enthusiasm was awesome. And I would always be like, it'd be like the gem. Like I love, I love doing that. But the Father Lassant series, man, the Father Lassant series, I don't know why, but you know, it, it manuals for, for young men and women applied to not as young men and women. And it said like, how do we expand on this? But the idea was simple. It was like, you know, start out reading the passage in scripture. In fact, the whole chapter that talks about be prepared, right. To, for, uh, to give a reason for the hope that you have, right. An apologetic. Um, but that chapter is talking about if someone is coming at you with a harsh word, do not exchange harsh words for harsh words. It, it talks about how you are to live. And it says to enthrone Christ in your heart with humility to do these things with all humility, having Christ enthroned. So, so it's never a, a match. It's never a bout of wits and everything else. It's, it's about being a living epistle. It's about being, you are the apologetic to them. And the, and the reason that you have is what's a motivating factor. <laughs> your life is the example. Your life is going to give more of a, a, a case for Christ than anything else in the world. You could have an amazing argument. If you're a royal scumbag and the person you're talking to knows it, good luck with that. You can be <laughs> yeah. the, you, I'm serious. You yeah. can be the yeah. best in the world, but if you're a scumbag, but if you're a good person, and you love God and you are you are living that practical daily life. You're praying, you're you are attending mass, you are frequenting the sacraments, you're loving your family, you're working hard at your job, you're just a regular Johnny Q, Sally Sue in the Catholic pew, doesn't matter. In fact, you're you're maybe most uniquely situated to be a powerful testimony to our Lord more than I, anybody else. This was a uh, if anybody doesn't no, there's a, a fantastic Catholic evangelization organization called St. Paul Street Evangelization. And we we did it in our our, our diocese a couple of years ago. They, they've restarted the chapter now. Um, so you, you can found your own chapter. And the method is essentially this. You set up a sign that says, uh, do you have questions about the faith? And it has Mary on it. And uh, it's just kind of invitation and you have all these pamphlets and tracts that answer all basic intellectual questions and objections about Catholicism. And you just you just go to the local art festival that happens in your city every year and you just pass out rosaries. You can buy the the, the really cheap ones for for cheap, you know, the colorful ones. Just pass out these roses or miraculous medals, miraculous. Get those blessed by priests, hand out miraculous medals, uh, medals and I remember when 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 we were setting this up, somebody was like, well, what if what if somebody asked me a question about Catholicism and I don't know the answer to it? Well, <laughs> great, great, yeah. great news. Uh, the answer to everything is charity. Yeah. If you just love that person, that will be very, far more convincing than having the right argument. You if somebody doesn't know the you know, he doesn't know you don't know the answer to that objection. Well, you just say, hey, I don't I'm not sure how to answer that. But let me let me see. I can find an answer for you. But tell me about uh what, what's brought you to that? What, you know, just love the person. This is something that uh, helps people, you know, with families or family members, you might feel intimidated. You may not know what the best answer is. Well, the best answer is always in every case charity. Um, so Jeremiah, tell us about the devout life. What, what is the place of the heart in the devout life in St. Francis of Sales? Uh, key. <laughs> so, so the devout life, I've got it here. Okay, so introduction to the devout life, St. Francis de Sales. 
And I wanted to talk about this for a long time. You know, I, in fact, I've been like threatening to do it for years. I think <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to talk about it. I promise you. And I never did. And finally it took me getting like, just really in the trenches on apologetics and talking about ontology and epistemology arguments about Bonaventurian epistemology and stuff, transcendental arguments and all that to then start to realize, man, dude, I am, I need to get grounded again. <laughs> my, my mind is kind of floating away. My, my dad used to say, you know, you're, you're so heavenly minded. You're, you're no earthly good. And he made, it may be wrong to say heavenly minded. It might be, you're so abstractly minded, you know, you're so apologetically minded that you're of no practical use. You're really good at explaining, you know, this, this qualification here, or this argument over there, but in the grand scheme, what are you doing? And I, and I've always been caught between those, those tensions and uh, of saying on the one hand, and I remember telling you, I, I just, <laughs> Tim, I told somebody recently, they're asking about the charismatic question. And I told them, I said, I remember telling Tim, I said, there's part of me that deep down inside is always going to be that barefooted hippie dude with the tambourine on a beach, right? <laughs> like sitting there listening to some music, Hosanna or something on an acoustic guitar played, not so great, but good enough to dance around to. Uh, you know, like, but be caught between that and the ivory tower mindset that could get lost in the halls of academia and debating with other people that barely ever get out and look like vampires and stuff, but they're super smart um, and caught in that. And I've always found that, that when I'm in that place, I, if I go too far in the brain part, I'm going to fall apart because that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is stuff like this, right? And so the heart of it is, who are you as a dude? What are you in your heart? Where? What's the grounding of all of this? Everything else you've got, what are the roots? Is the roots just a bunch of big books with fancy words? No, it has to do with humility. It has to do with prayer. And the book's amazing. I'll just mention a couple parts, um, just kind of a topical thing to tell you what he's dealing with. Um, of course, he's talking about what is the devout life, you know, first of all, meditations on fundamental truths, general confession, your profession of fidelity to God, purification from venial sins and imperfections. He talks about the necessity of prayer. That's part two. So the presence of God, invocation, meditation, morning prayer, evening prayer. So he's heavily emphasizing right from the start, right from the start, you are enthroning Christ in your heart right away. And then once you've done that, you are on your knees <laughs> because he's king. So you're on your knees morning, noon, and night, literally. Um, the third part is virtue. Okay. So your concentration of effort, patience, humility, meekness, diligence, obedience, chastity, poverty and wealth, friendships, society and solitude, amusements, fairness to others, desire. And of course, he talks about the married and the widow uh, and to the unmarried as well. And then he goes in the fourth one, state of the soul, courage, temptation, anxiety, sadness, spiritual barrenness. And in the last part, spiritual review. So he talks about our neighbor and ourselves, right? God, our neighbor, ourselves, our progress, final counsel of the author. And in there is nothing about read a whole bunch of books and learn fancy words. Nowhere. But yet he's talking about how to be the strongest witness in the world and how to do that by living your life as profoundly as you possibly can in humility, 
in devotion, uh, obedience, and prayer, and love for your neighbor, kindness. Somebody in the chat, search in the archives, says, Scott on recommends this. I don't know about the book, but he recommended this idea. That in no small, small part, this theologian inspired St. Colby and his reflections on Mary. Yes. He was and, talking about uh, Matthias Joseph Schieben, this German author mm -hmm. that uh, influenced St. Maximilian, apparently. Yeah. So he, he was uh, recommending that. Um, interesting. Yeah, this is um, the Introduction to the Devout Life, <clears throat> one of the classic texts. Uh, if you go to meaningofcatholic.com slash resources, we have, here are the, all the spiritual classics, the immemorial spiritual classics. The first two are lesser known because they're, uh, for various reasons, but they're fantastic. This, the letter of divine ascent is an Eastern classic. And then the imitation of Christ, everybody's heard of that. But then the introduction to the devout life, we have, you can get it for free online or buy in print, obviously. But if you have not read, I would at least two or three or four of these, finding which one is most amenable to your temperament and your spiritual life. But what's interesting about the devout life is that it's the only one of all of these works uh, that is specifically written for the laity. I think that's one of the, the strengths of devout life. So even imitation of Christ is written for religious and priests or the, or the institutes is written for monks. And so we kind of have to translate it to our laity life. But what's so great about the devout life is that it's written primarily for laity. And it's actually one of those things in this uh, How Not to Be Secular, the series that I did. And I'm hoping to hear back from James Smith. I actually emailed him this summer, but I emailed his school address. So I don't know if he's going to be responding yet. I, I got a call. I'm going to call his office and I would like to interview him. Um, cause he's up the road. He teaches it at Calvin actually he teaches philosophy, but the book he wrote is a reading of a Catholic philosopher. <laughs> and so he's, he's reading that and interpreting it on his own. And I interpreted, reinterpreted it to bring it back. Um, but it was, it was a good book. But in that series, I talk about the way that, um, the world changes. And, and one of the pivotal things in the, in the timeline of how we got to where we are now, the good things that were done that had consequences that we didn't maybe anticipate and that would it wouldn't have mattered anyway. It was good in and of itself to do is the right thing. Um, kind of like studying nature because of your, you know, the incarnation and wanting to see God, uh, uh, God's design and imprint upon uh, the things that he has made and its creatures or the uh, Jesuit fascination with psychology during the time uh, of the Jansenist stuff like that, that, um, when when that stuff's happening, people may not anticipate where that will lead, right? This kind of psychologism that goes on now, um, the way that we uh, talk about the mind and make excuses and kind of push away sin and just make it a matter of just the head or nature that we look through the microscope so many times and so many times and we marveled and everything else. And eventually some, you know, half-hearted person said, uh, I don't see God in that microscope. <laughs> I, I don't see him. I do see the mechanisms of nature. And so it, it opened up a social imaginary for them that said, I don't need God to make sense of nature. But it was our looking through. The, <laughs> it was our test and our analysis that ultimately opened up these things. This is one of them. This book was one of the first, if not the first, that was written exclusively for laity that was revealing things 
and certain lessons that in the past were almost exclusively intended for people inside of convents and monasteries. And it was meant to say, and he even says it in his introduction that this is, he's like, look, this is for the lay person. This is what this is for. Um, and it was, it was pivotal. It changed everything. And it, it gave us access to where that two-tiered system, that fast track of, well, the, the monks and the priests and the bishops and the popes, they have access to all this, this knowledge of like how to pray and, and the order of things and how to dress and, and how to behave and where the heart needs to be. And they're all being made saints. And, and that, in a weird way, opened up the door and allowed that, that to go out to the people and allowed the people to rise up. And there was a kind of leveling, strangely enough, that happened by, it's, it's more like the, the tide raising all boats, right? That it, it gave that feeling in society um, for that. And one of the things, you know, when, when talking about this book um, and thinking about the Immaculate Heart is um, solitude and silence and society. And that Our Lady was a lot of both, right? that there were times where she was in groups and there were times when she was alone, that we have uh, her in the, the, the quiet and we have her where she's speaking and, and saying something, right? And telling people what they need to do. And so there's this delicate balance of those things with her. And, and he says here, he says, to seek society and to shun it are like blamable extremes for those who are living in the world. And it is, uh, to such that I'm speaking by shunning it, we indicate disdain and contempt for our neighbor. And by seeking it, uh, we imply idleness and inactivity. First, think of thyself and then of others, says St. Bernard. But he says at all times, and this is maybe something that these two things, this is all I'll leave it with because I know the time here. Uh, some kinds of society have no end except recreation from more serious occupation. And though we should not exceed in such, still we may lawfully bestow our leisure therein. And he says, another kind, uh, we owe to courtesy, such as mutual visits and meeting together out of respect to our neighbor. And with regard to these, we, we should neither be uh, punctilious in their observance nor discourteous in their neglect, but unobtrusively fulfill our part so as at once to avoid incivility and distraction and at all times to let simplicity candor, gentleness, and modesty prevail in our conversation. And when I read that simplicity, candor, gentleness, and modesty, I thought of Our Lady immediately. And I thought at all times to prevail. And that's easy to do if we harmonize both of these. There's something on in society with no end except for recreation. <laughs> Sometimes that might be social media. Right. That might be the way that we use it. Is it really a tool? Are we really using it that way? And if we feel that we're using it to advance a cause and it's our little soapbox in the corner of nowhere, if that's what it is for us, then at the end of the day, are we doing that with simplicity, candor, gentleness and modesty? Because that really comes down to that word finesse, right? a degree of excellence of metal, it's fineness or it's purity. It has to do with superior quality, precious, valuable, admirable, pleasing, pure, refined, fineness, delicate, exquisite, fine, and sharp. All of those things are a condition, right? It's a des describing the condition of being something. In that regard, in that regard, the Virgin Mary. Again, like you can see this as, 
as the optimal example that we have other than our Lord himself, right? The optimal example. And so Our Lady's Immaculate Heart as an example of this, how in this crazy world, in the heart of, in the eye of the storm, that, that place where our hearts can find rest uh, and that we can find that finesse and that we can in fact be that finesse in the world and maybe in that way be a reflection of the Immaculate Heart uh, if, in the way that it's affected our lives in providing rest and calm and peace and love and kindness to others. Beautiful. Wow. Beautiful. I'll just add um, <clears throat> that uh, this finesse, this, uh, this fineness, you might say someone who possesses it is refined, right? In, in all manner of, of uh, life. And so how does a thing become refined? Well, it starts rough. It has to be burned uh, through some sort of, uh, it's like a purgation, right? You refine precious metals by heating them up to the point where the impurities disappear. They, they burn off, right? So if we are to be refined the way Our Lady is refined, we have to throw ourselves into the burning love that is the Trinity. How do we do that? Through ritual, right? A, a, a guy I know uh, objected to me several times that God wants my heart, not my ritual, right? He, he does not happen to be a Catholic any longer. And in the moment, I never had anything clever to say. But like a year later, I was like, oh man, I should have said that. He's right. God wants my heart. He does not want my ritual, but ritual forms my heart. Ritual, our prayer routine, our weekly mass attendance, our devotions, all of these things, they're not just cold, uh, empty realities. This is the purgative fire here on earth that takes away our impurities. Ritual includes confession when I've sinned. All these other things that have to do with being Catholic, right? Growth in virtue oftentimes is a self-denial that burns. So if we're going to be refined again, we have to enter into a devotion that burns through the ritual, but ultimately because we want to give our hearts to our Lord. This is the... Uh... Thank you so much, Joe. This has been yeah. one of my favorite shows we've ever done because yeah. it, it cuts to the heart. Cuts yeah. to the heart. I, I'm inspired. <laughs> Let, let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, this is so the, here. Bring up the Russian Catholic icon of Our Lady of Fatima with this depiction of the Immaculate Heart of Mary as the center of her heart. So let's offer up all these reflections to the Immaculate Heart of Mary that through her we may gr- draw closer. To Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Victory, pray for, pray for us. Saint Joseph, Terry of Demons, pray for pray us. For us. St. Anthony the Desert, pray for all clergy and seminarians. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Right. Jesus is King. Yeah. Amen.